Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today I've once again found someone who is putting out so many great thoughts on Twitter and TikTok and other places like that and convince them to come be our guest. Dr. Gabriel Cruz is a professor of media studies and particularly though uses the lens of critical theory to talk about the kind of shows that we talk about on, on this podcast all the time in terms of fantasy, science fiction, comic books, all the rest. And I have learned so much from his TikToks and I've wanted to bring that uh, those questions to this in terms of what is critical theory? What does it mean to have a critical lens as we analyze media? And, and how can it make us better fans and, and better understand the stories that we love and the stories that we talk about? To me, that is so central to what this podcast does. I'm really excited to have him on as a guest. And we'll get to all of that right after some advertisements that I really wish I could be critical of, but I need to pay the bills. All that and more. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host, they, them pronouns. Uh, as I said, I'm welcoming Dr. Gabriel Cruz. Dr. Gabriel is a professor of American studies at North Carolina State University. Uh, did I get that right? North Carolina Central? Media studies at North Carolina Central. That's it. North Carolina Central. Okay. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, you don't have a basketball team or a football team we care about too much. So unfortunately, it's the only reason I know about many North Carolina universities. That's, that's entirely fair. But I went to a school where I could play Division Three athletics instead of watching Division One, So I get that. Sure. Um, but yeah, so I'm so glad you're here. And uh, yeah, if you want to take a minute to introduce yourself and say kind of who you are and how you kind of came into this uh uh, particular thing you're doing. Absolutely. So, uh, like you said, I'm a, uh, a professor of media studies at uh, North Carolina Central University in the mass communication department. Um, I am a huge friggin' nerd uh, mm. who, for a long time, used that to increase my proximity to whiteness uh, because I'm a Chicano uh, son of a Mexican immigrant, and um, it's a whole thing. But basically, I have taken that desire to be immersed in American pop culture and turned a critical eye towards it. Uh, which is a lot of what I do in my research. My primary area of focus is the ideologies and persuasive messaging within superhero narratives, primarily uh, in adaptations as opposed to uh, what, you know, graphic sequential art or comic books or things like that. Most of what I talk about is like the movies and TV shows and what have you. And I, I look for it. I analyze it in terms of like race, class and gender. My secondary area of uh, research, which is relatively new, is white nationalist propaganda because I don't believe in having good mental health days. Mostly, uh, it's like I'm, I'm feeling really good right now. Let's go check out the Daily Stormer. Uh, anyway, so you know, on a previous podcast, I talked about how I watched all five seasons of The Wire within about three weeks, which incredible television. That's not intense. very good for my mental health. So I that's understand. intense. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad you're here. And I love actually the way you frame that in terms of the discussion with of, of geekiness and whiteness and how they interact. That to me is a topic that like I, I, I think has come into my life ever since going back to high school when my group of friends who were nerdy and geeky were mostly white. It's partially where I lived. But also – and I remember there was like one friend of ours who was black who would often talk about like how much he got teased by, by other people of color – for interacting with nerdiness and for caring about like X-Men and things like that because yeah. it was perceived, you know, and Weird Al has a great song called White and Nerdy about yeah. how the connected those are. And I think as our fandoms are getting so much more diverse, which is great, and or I think have always been diverse, but we're seeing that more and it's being better represented. I, I've, that's one of the things I've loved most about your analysis is your own kind of personal introspection of 
what does it mean to be a person of color interacting with this stuff and 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 holding those two identities together instead of like one as you said, kind of submerging the other, whatever that would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh... One of the things that we have to there, there, there's two ideas that we have to hold in our minds when we're talking about this sort of stuff um, that are seemingly at odds, but also very much the reality. Mm-hmm. And, and one is that our our modern pop fiction, fantasy, science fiction, that sort of stuff is very much rooted in the voices of the white folks who uh, invented the genre or were at least formative in it. So we talk about right. like Mary Shelley being the beginning of science fiction, uh, or you look at the other people like um, C.S. Lewis or uh, J.R. Tolkien, who you know pretty much started modern fantasy as we understand it now, things right. like that. And in that discourse, there's people like you know. Um, Octavia, uh, Octavia Spencer, uh, wait, David Butler, Butler, excuse me. I'd get her mixed up with the actress. <laughs> Pardon me. Octavia Butler, um, as well as, you know, even someone like Derek Bell, who is the founder of Croak Race Theory also wrote science fiction, uh, at least one story called the space traders, um, which is read it when you can like come down a little bit that day because <laughs> right. it's, it's heavy. Um, the basic premise of that story is aliens show up and offer to solve all of the United States' problems with uh, their economy, with uh, food shortage, with the environment, if they give uh, the aliens all of the all of the black folk in the United States. Uh, spoilers, not a great ending. Um, mm-hmm. And he was making a point about privilege and things like that uh, and, and race and, and sociocultural systems. So, but all these different things that go into it. And so, like, we have historically centered the white voices of people like Frank Herbert or uh, Heinlein or, you know, even Ursula K. Le Guin, who was writing, you know, stories that were very subversive at the time in terms of race and gender. But we're still from that sort of perspective, Uh, which I I love the the Earthsea stories, right? They're awesome. Um, But also, you know, there's those sort of themes as well. So... At the same time, one of my favorite stats to throw out is that in like 1935, so we're talking like the height of the Depression, there were roughly 133 million people in the United States, give or take, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there were about 100 million comics in circulation annually throughout the 1930s. Right. You don't get that kind of circulation and readership without a wide variety of people reading these things. And the fact is, in terms of comic books, they were being consumed so readily in large part because they were easy to read. They were written in a way that was accessible to people who didn't have a great mm-hmm. uh, education, as well as the use of the visual representation made it much more accessible to people who struggle with literacy, but also people who may have had learning disabilities or things like that. So like they were read by so many people. That's why in the 1950s, you get this like concern about the threat of comic books on the social yeah. psyche, not just with kids, but overall American the society. The code and all that. Absolutely. And the, you know, the seduction of the innocent and Frederick Wortham and all that kind of stuff in the 1950s. Um, so there's always been, and along with that, there's always been political messaging. There's always been critical ideas. So even when the voices were largely shaped by white Americans, they were still dealing with power dynamics and that kind of thing. Um, one of my uh, other favorite examples is like, so Captain America, right, mm-hmm. was created by uh Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, Jewish American uh, um, uh, creators who were also white Americans as well with that conditional whiteness of Judaism, right? Right. Uh, Of being Jews and what that does in terms of who's considered white and not, that kind of thing. And 
you know, it's no coincidence that, you know, these guys, uh, a lot of them often change their last names to seem more, you know, American appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, dominant Stan Lee. Stan Lee. Right. Stan Lee Liebrotz, yeah. Right, right. Or, or Kirby. His last name wasn't Kirby. It was something else, and he abbreviated it to Kirby yeah. uh, to fit in. And, like, issue number one is Cap punching Hitler. And that's yeah. great. However, we also have to grapple with the fact that those early Captain America runs were profoundly racist and ableist and sexist and all kinds of things, right? Yeah. Because, again, like, because you can have, and this gets to the broader theme, I think, of what we would like to discuss, and that is that you can critique a thing and acknowledge its merits while also recognizing that there are some real flaws here. Yeah. Right? Um, some of the early villains in the Captain America comics were corrupt uh, corporate industrialists, right? Like, the original Red Skull was a uh, Department of Defense contractor who made airplanes, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Who adopted the moniker of the Red Skull. um, And, you know, he would turn out to be a Nazi sympathizer in that same issue because you would have, like, two issues of Captain America, two stories in a single uh, printed issue because they were, like, 50 pages long was a story where the villains are Nazis who are also like circus performers. Like I think there were Omar and Sando and Sando was a little person with, with apparently psychic powers or at least was claiming to have them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have like the further vilification of people who do not look normative. Right. In that way. So there's a lot to unpack there. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I love all you, you're starting with because it kind of feels like we're diving into the using of the critical theory and we'll, we'll get to step back and divide, uh, define terms in a second. But I want to just kind of go a little more of that because for me as a person who my own religious belief today is not Judaism, it's, it's Christianity because I come from an interfaith home. But I came from, you know, my father's Jewish, his family's been Jewish. And one thing that like I've really been reckoning with in, in kind of coming to understand with that is sort of thinking of how like – Today, my Judaism does not. I am. I am white. I am un, unquestionably white. My Judaism does not affect that at all. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was not really white. My father had to hide his Judaism in some ways from, sure. like you know, uh, applying to college and stuff like that. And it's been, and like, I, there's been some great scholarship on the Jewish origins of a lot of these stories at mm-hmm. a time when Jews were definitely being treated better than a lot of people of color, for sure. But like, I, like I don't know if this is true with Kirby, but I know the, the creators of uh, Superman, for example, you know, went into comics in part because they wouldn't get hired by more traditional yeah. publishing or things like that. And, and yeah, Superman is, I think, a very similar thing. Like, his first villains are a corrupt landlord mm-hmm. and a corporate executive who's trying to bust a union yeah. and a guy who's who's uh, committing domestic assault against his, his partner. And and so there's a lot of that great stuff. And then also a lot of really terrible stuff in, you know, yeah. in sim- same ways that like, you know, all the stuff that's coming out today, we can see as being like great advances, but have some problem with it. And I'm sure 50 years from now, People will look at what we think of as like some like to me, Shira, the animated show. I don't know if you've ever. Oh saw yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Some of the best representation I've ever seen. Everything from like the queerness to the racial diversity to, for myself as someone who deals with uh, mental illness issues, uh, having a character who very clearly has borderline, which is what I have, which is very often stigmatized, and her journey being seen as a worthy one. Like the representation of it blew me away. Mm-hmm. I'm sure in 50 years they'll be like, oh my God, Shiro was so all these things that were terrible. You know, it's sure. it, it's how we advance. Um, but but we're kind of giving people an appetizer for all that. Let's kind of step back a bit and just say, so what is critical theory? Because I think for a lot of people, 
either they'd never really heard of it, or as I was for a while, it just sounds like, oh yeah, we're being, we're not just saying, wow, that lightsaber fight was really cool. We're saying, let's look in depth. Sure. And then now, of course, a lot more people have heard of it because it's suddenly be critical race theory has suddenly become the thing to get villainized and all this terrible stuff. And, um, my listener base, I think is, there's no one in my listener base who's going to be like, oh, critical race theory, bad, bad, bad. I've, pretty leftist around here sure. but but just to kind of give go, to help frame it because I think a lot of people either have no idea what it is or have gotten a very one-sided perspective what is critical theory and how does it apply to media okay so before I get into that I do want to say one thing that sort of coincides with what you just said and that is oh, that go for it, yeah. my, my perspective and what I like to say is that progress is a series of problematic steps forward uh, mm. and if we can reconcile with that we can understand that it's everything and everything right one text is not going to liberate everybody. Uh, but if we can take the good, we can move that forward and then leave behind the bad for the next iteration. Right. Um, and talking about, uh, uh, your faith practice, I'm Catholic. Uh, mm-hmm. we have the concept of the church militant, which means that life is a struggle and that's really all there is until you die, uh, yep. which is great and positive. <laughs> right? But, but the point being the churn, the struggle, that's the point now. Right. Uh, and I think it's the same thing with academia and scholarship. So, so then let's transfer this into the, the critical theory aspect. So critical theory, I need mean, to understand just in, in, if I can condense, um, a century and a half of, of scholarship into just some quick blurbs. Uh, you have uh, Marx and Engels, right? The development of Marxism, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. which we see uh, be used for the uh, for some things like the the Russian Revolution uh, and all the the uh, liberatory, but also horrific things uh, that yep. happened in that event. And then immediately after that, you have you know some other uh, efforts as well at uh, application of, of Marx in a, in a militant, violent way. Uh, and then you have the Frankfurt School in Germany who were developed, oh, I want to say in the 19-teens um, up through the, about the 1930s, uh, many of whom were Jewish. Uh, and a lot of those fellows were like, well, that revolution was horrifying. We need to find a way to not reproduce oppressive systems through revolution. Let's let's talk about this. And so this gives rise to what we refer to as like neo-Marxism. And neo-Marxism is where we talk about like the ideas of the ruling class, which is something that Marx talked about. But instead of focusing on material consequences of wealth and, and what have you that Marx was concerned with, looking at things like how do ideas, how do ideologies, and that ideology is just a fancy word for a worldview. How do those spread throughout society? How do they um, sort of propagate certain ideas? Uh, this mm-hmm. process, this fancy word that we like to throw around called interpolation, which is being uh, internalizing an ideology such that you are then brought into a position of supporting the ideology, uh, whether that's positive or negative. It can often be used in a negative way. Um, so we get these sort of ideas coming about in the 1920s and 30s through the Frankfurt School. A lot of them leave Germany because of the Nazis. They see the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're like, well, it's time to get out of Dodge. And a, not all of them, but a lot of them come to the United States. Um, people like uh, like Theodore Adorno, for example, uh, comes to the U.S. Um, and at the same time, you also have uh, people like Antonio Gramsci, who was arguing for this idea of uh, who was a, a Italian socialist labor organizer who was trying to bridge the gap between the academics and the working people right. for to create a some degree of a worker solidarity and, and social solidarity. And of course, he was imprisoned by Benito Mussolini and died in prison. Um, and he wrote what's referred to as the prison notebooks, which is a, you know an interesting text to read. And he said 
the, ter- the term that he coined, and always you got to bear in mind that these are these ideas are almost never original to the people who co- who coined the terms. Right. It's that they have a way of synthesizing it in a way that folks can then access. And his idea was hegemony, and hegemony is the dominant ruling idea or or norms or set of ideas. And it's important to understand that a hegemony is not good or bad. It merely right. is. Every society has to have a hegemony, right? There has to be a hegemonic structure to have a unified society. And, and part of Gramsci's point was that, well, it shouldn't necessarily be the ideas of the ruling class. It should be the proletariat. It should be the working class ideas that shape society and move us forward. What does that have to do with movies and whatnot? Well, if we take that and we understand, like, the neo-Marxists in Frankfurt were concerned about the, pro- the propagation of ideas. And I toss about Adorno in particular because I have a bone to pick with him. <laughs> Mostly that, like, he was one of these guys who was like, yeah, you have to be worried about authoritarian perspectives and that kind of thing because that gives rise mm-hmm. to Nazis. But also pop culture is illegitimate. <laughs> uh, Gramsci, the same way, was like, you know, the reason we have so much crime is because of these Sherlock Holmes novels. <laughs> like... It's like, all right, y'all. I, I, I mean, having lived through the age of video games are going to cause all the problems. Right. It's nice to know that blaming pop culture for society's problems is uh, not unique to Nintendo and PlayStation, but actually goes way back before that. Uh, it was it was either Socrates or Aristotle or Plato or one of them that said, you know, the problem with writing things down is that the young people are going to forget how to remember things. It's like, oh, this is just that time-honored tradition of older folks hating young people. Younger people stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Literacy, who's got time for writing? Anyway, so, um, and so forth and so on. So, uh, but Adorno was like, you know, the only legitimate music is classical music and whatnot. It's like, okay, calm down. Um, so when we look at the movies that we have now, we have to understand some very obvious things. And that is that movies don't naturally exist, right? right. There's no free range Hulu originals out in fields for us to go harvest, right? Every production, whether that's a TV show, a play, a whatever, a music, a piece of song, a music, whatever, is the result of human in- endeavor, which means it is artificial, which means it, it, it comes from a human mind. And right. whether we like to admit it or not, everything that comes out of our brain is subject to the values that we hold. We might be working in opposition to those values, but they're still informed by those values. We might be trying to deconstruct some things still informed by whatever it is we're trying to move through. Not to mention all the ways in which we have ideas that we endorse through, um, through the creation act itself. Mm-hmm. So if we understand then that um, every, every movie, every TV show is an idea that, was, that came about from somebody, we also have to recognize that it came about through power structures because you and I can do this. And this is pretty ground level stuff. Although we do need to recognize that we one uh, can afford to do this on a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock. Yep. Right. Two, we have the technological ability to do so. Yeah. Right? Which is also a privilege in terms of the expense of it. So. Absolutely. And three, uh, we can, we have the editorial decision of whether or not to publish this. Right. right which is some degree of power there. So even at its most basic roots, we still have to reckon, we still have to grapple with power structures here, but at its uh, highest places, Hollywood, uh, you know, broadcast networks, cable news, whatever else, even more so, 
right? The stuff, it, as I've heard yeah. uh, a million times, it's a wonder anything ever gets made because of all the steps you have to go through, all the hoops right. you have to jump through, all the people that have to green light it, right? Whatever project you, it happens to be. Did you have a contact thing? You and I can choose to make a podcast. Mm -hmm. I can come up with a really good idea for a $500 million movie that I think will be a much better representation of things. Yeah. I can't make I can't get that done, and neither Absol can you probably. You know, no, absolutely right because we don't have access to those social institutions, right? Yeah. Um, but if Marvel ever wants to hire me, I have a price. It is roughly <laughs> the size of my student loan debt, and I have no problem. Like, <laughs> I have integrity to a point. No, <laughs> because we have to live in the system. No, but the the the, the thing is like basically I say all that to say this: every Marvel movie, every DC movie, every whatever movie is the idea of someone who comes from a ruling class. Even if the writers are from marginalized perspectives, we have right. to recognize that they can only do this with the consent of someone who is a part of the ruling class or classes, however we choose to organize right. them, right? So, and this is why, so I was at a, at a conference recently where we were discussing this idea of what's called plastic representation. And this is a, a, t a term coined by uh, Dr. Kristen Warner, uh, who is a African-American woman who, who argues that plastic representation is when you have representation of a marginalized person uh, or of a, of a particular demographic. In this case, she was talking about black women, but of a marginalized person or demographic uh, in a way that is broadly accurate but lacks cultural specificity. The example she used is there was a movie starring Viola Davis where I forget the name of the movie, but they used a, the score involved a song by Nina Simone. Nina Simone mm. being a obvious icon of black music, right? And so, yes, that that audio signifier of blackness that is Nina Simone resonates with the audience to reinforce the blackness of the character, right? right. However, that's probably not realistic to the character as they exist in the narrative, right? The character being a black woman of a certain age in a certain setting, it knows who Nina Simone is, obviously, but it's probably more inclined towards other more contemporary music of the time. Right. Right. And so what they're doing then in that musical choice is trading cultural specificity, which is going to resonate with a much smaller audience, but in a more meaningful way for something that broadly recognizes blackness and is easily recognizable to a audience, you know, and has a broader thus marketing. Right. Way, right. So, so I remember this was a topic that got talked about a lot when um, Luke Cage and uh, yeah. the first Black Panther movie came out at similar times. Mm -hmm. And both of those were creators were talking about how important it was to show a diversity of experience of either the black experience in Harlem or of experience in this fictionalized African country. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah you're getting that specificity of, of it's not just here's the one character who comes from X group who speaks for that entire group and is meant to be the representation of everything in that group. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Dwayne McDuffie, the, the famous comic book writer, said, you know, the hard part about writing a character of color, and I'm paraphrasing, is the hard part about writing a character of color is that they don't get to just be an individual. They have to be a symbol for everybody else. Right. Yeah. And so Warner's point with plastic representation is that when we engage in that sort of mass appeal, almost like manufactured um, uh, abstract uh, representation yeah it's better than the tokenism it's better than uh, you know lesser forms and stereotypes and tropes and what have you but also like we can't it, it's almost unreasonable to expect these major productions to have cultural specificity because first and foremost they're in the business of staying in business 
Right. right? And so going back to critical theory, uh, we are looking at how do how does power factor into this? And within that, you have all kinds of things like um, neo-Marxist uh, critique, which has to do with like labor and value and mm-hmm. social standing and worth, as well as you have race, critical race dis- uh, analysis, which is not the same as critical race theory. Um uh, which also looks at how race is constructed, what I think the scholar Lisa Flores talks about race making, right, mm-hmm. uh, through mass-mediated texts and how we construct stuff. Uh, and then we have, like, feminists and all that. And the list goes on and on. But all of it right. has to do with the analysis of power and how that factors into these depictions. So... Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, all. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's awesome. And I know that you're basically... Hey, like, I'm sure that, like, intro to critical theory could be a, like, you know, full semester class. And I'm asking you to sum it up in, in a few minutes. But but if I understand it, so what we're basically talking about is that critical theory is going into the analysis of a thing, and in this case, media, with an awareness and an understanding of all the power dynamics that are happening both within the world of the story, that, like, these characters exist in that world, mm-hmm. but that also all the factors that go into the creation of it in terms of the perspectives, the perspectives, not just of the writer and the director, but also the producer and the people who greenlight the checks and mm-hmm. the movie studios, and then all of that, that we need to be aware of all of those factors and, and use that lens of analysis when discussing that. Is that is that somewhat of a layman's definition yeah, no i mean that's that's entirely yeah that's that's accurate and my work in particular is concerned with the symbolic depictions on screen i don't concern myself with the productions because that's its own thing right, uh, right. i mean the two are intimately connected don't get me wrong but from an academic perspective about what i can cover in a research article right i concern myself with like what's happening on screen i don't even really concern myself with the audience mm. because audience analysis is again its own thing and right. we could talk about like there's an article that I like to cite all the time um, that is a it's called Mental Models Approach to uh, Latino Representation or something along those lines by Dana Mastro uh, came out in, like 2007 2008 but talks about how like Law and Order and uh, CSI and all those other procedural crime shows consistently use um, Latinos in the background as not even like the episode villain but just mm-hmm. villains in general they're gangsters right. or they're you know criminals of some sort. And how, like, personal relationships, like having meaningful friendships with Latinos can help reduce the likelihood of buying into those uh, stereotypes as being Mm. accurate. However, it's worth noting that is a reduction, not an elimination. Yeah. So then audience analysis becomes its own thing. So you have the, you have the production uh, analysis, you have the actual textual analysis, which is what I do. And then you have like the audience analysis. And we consider all of these things when doing you know our, our research. But usually I focus on the actual textual uh, right. stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad we kind of get that definition. And, and I think that's going to help really shape this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. And before that, we turn to the more of the media. I'd love to hear more about your own story, because I think and, and I took us off on a tangent. This is my fault. But sure. what you said at the beginning about um, your own interaction with geekiness and nerdiness and this content as and as it related to whiteness and your own uh, interactions with that as, as a Chicano person, mm-hmm. I, I'd love to hear more about that. Like now that we understand what critical theory is, how does how did critical theory play into your own kind of journey as a fan and where you come to? Sure. So I'm I'm going to uh, couch that with a. Uh, ham-fisted paraphrase of Stuart Hall, who is uh, often attributed as being like sort of the, the founding father of cultural studies as we know it. Right. Uh, he was one of these guys who was like interested in these 
the neo-Marxist perspective, but being a, a, a black man from Jamaica was very keenly aware of the fact that no one else at the time, and this is we're talking like 1960s, 70s, was talking about race. And he's like, well, hold on a minute. If we're going to talk about the British Empire, we should talk about race. Anyway, um, he talks about one of his uh, articles, chapters, whatever, about how basically we have our identities sold back to us as marginalized people. And he was talking in the context of third cinema, which is films made by uh, marginalized communities and how we need more of that uh, because like part of diaspora, part of colonization has been the stripping away of identities. And then in a modern context, having those identities sold back to us through pop media. Right. Right. Keep that in mind with what I'm about to say. So I am Chicano. Uh, My mom is a white American uh, Southern woman. My father is a Mexican immigrant. I have uh, two dads. I have a birth father and my dad. My birth father, who I have not, I have had like two interactions with in my entire life, mm-hmm. in the last 20 years, um, both of whom are from Mexico, roughly the same region of Mexico. Uh, and both, you know, uh, dark-skinned uh, people of, you know, native ancestry, that kind of stuff. Um, in the, when I was a kid, I was born in a town where Mexicans had been literally trucked in to work in Mm. uh, poultry processing plants, right? And my mom had been adamant about me learning to, you know, embrace Mexican culture, things like that. But when we left, uh, and I had already, by the time we left at the age of eight, I'd already separated, you know, from my birth father, things like that. Um, We moved to like Northern Virginia. We moved for about four, about four-ish years. I lived for a few months in Georgia with the thought that I was going to stay, ended up not, moved back to North Carolina where I am, where I'm from, and a few different towns, uh, you know, in the course of uh, three years. And my dad enters the picture when I'm about 11, 12 years mm-hmm. old. And uh, the construction of my Latino identity has, there's often been gaps there. And, and to right. my mom's credit, did a lot to try to reinforce that at home. But I'm also dealing in primarily white spaces, uh, dealing with, you know, contemporaries and peers who are immersed in white pop culture. And also my mom, huge fan of things like, you know, Led Zeppelin and Dwight Yoakam. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing like Vicente Fernandez and Los Tigres del Norte and, and Marco Antonio Solis at home alongside of like the Dixie Chicks and Dwight Yoakam and, and, (laughs) and whatever else. Right. Uh, so, so I'm getting all those things together and, and so my, my white American perspective of myself is is pretty well formed. This is also where I get into things like The the Hobbit at, at, in sixth grade, and I just never look back. Fantasy right. and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but when I'm trying to construct my, my Latino identity, I have next to nothing to fall back on, at least immediately right. accessible, right? Because this is the, the 90s. Um, and so I've got the X-Men. And so Nightcrawler is who I often attribute a lot of my emotional resonance to because Nightcrawler was a demon who also was Catholic and I'm Catholic. And so that, that jives, mm-hmm. uh, if you grow up in the South, particular parts of the South, Catholicism is often demonized in a very literal sense. So I, I, I just want to tell this quick story. My, yeah. my mother's fam- my mother's family is Baptist from Texas. Yeah. Um, my mother and her sisters were born in upstate New York, but the family's all from Texas way yeah. back. Like, we think Robert E. Lee, uh, we think Jefferson Davis might have been a direct descendant, and there's some pride of that. All right. A couple of generations back, which is a, a thing, to be <laughs> yeah. sure. But uh, so my mother marries a Jewish man. Yeah. And the cat, the cat, the um, 
Southern Protestant Baptist family is not very happy about this. Then her sister marries a Catholic. And that's ten times worse. Yeah. <laughs> and like my, the, the two sisters clashed for a long time before my mother passed away about her being like, my aunt being like, at least I married a Christian. Why is this worse somehow? But right? to Southern yeah. Catholic, Southern Baptists, like, and yeah. The, 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 the clan was, the, the clan hated uh, Catholics as much as anybody else. Uh, at least that, that second yep. wave iteration of it did. Yeah. So um, I remember my mom's a convert. And when she joined uh, the, the Catholic church, one of her aunts said, I know you're a Catholic now, but I also know you still love Jesus. And I was like, I, I, <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, anyway. So, but, uh, but Nightcrawler was also defined in many ways by trying to fit into society that would not allow him to. Right. right. Uh, in the, the X-Men evolution, uh, cartoon, if you remember from like the early two thousands, mm-hmm. right. Nightcrawler, it has a, a holographic watch, has a watch that projects a hologram where he appears as a white American male. Right. And as long as he's kept his tail wrapped around his waist, no one could tell. And so it was that aspect of trying to buy his way in. And, right. s- and while certainly at the time I wasn't conceptualizing it in that way, that had a lot of resonance for me as a kid who was brown enough to be picked out of a crowd uh, and told, you know, go back to where you come from, all that kind of stuff, uh, who was told that Mexicans couldn't speak English as a matter of biological fact. Um, Jesus. Yeah. So like wanting to be a part of this world that I had some degree of birthright to by virtue of, you know, my mom's side of the family Um, and coming up against that barrier, like the narratives about people who were perpetual outsiders, Mm -hmm. uh, despite, even if they looked, even if you had like a Cyclops or a Jean Grey or whoever else, uh, or Remy, because Gambit was like the Southerner I wanted to be, right? He was cool and could like talk to girls and stuff. In retrospect, Remy is really working through some things. <laughs> the way he approaches women might not actually be the thing we want teenage boys to learn from. Like, but... it, it, yeah, this sort of cavalier attitude he has for other people's emotions at times, maybe not the most emotionally healthy thing. But again, as like an 11 year old, I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this. And also he blows things up and that's awesome. Um, so that was the water I was swimming in. And so I, I glommed onto it in part, in part because I had that emotional resonance of the outsider, but also because it was a way of, uh, it was a way of making friends. Right. People, right. And so going back to the idea of critical theory, I was internalizing the ideas of the dominant class of the, of mm. the, of the, the ruling governing ideas, um, to have access to right. these systems and, and powers. And you might say, well, how, you know, the X-Men in particular is laden with ideas that are uh, counter uh, mainstream and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, kind of, depending mm-hmm. on what version of the X-Men we're looking at. But also the ones that are subversive are still being filtered through that gatekeeping, you know, folks who say yes or no to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense, and I think that's such a I, I, just for yourself. I'm so glad that 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 was able to help you reframe that journey, help you reframe that understanding. But I think it's one that like, and I promise we will get to talk about some of the stories. Uh, but just as content creators, I think that's so helpful because, mm-hmm. like, for me, one of the most powerful kind of learning moments I have had was early when I was getting started and I was first trying to think about like who could be guests on the podcast beyond my like regular co-host. And I went to a, a fantastic con in um, Wisconsin. It's called um, WISCON. Uh, for anyone who's ever in the Midwest, I strongly recommend it because it's it's specifically feminist-based. It does all kinds of great analysis. Um, and one of the people I, I heard was a black woman who had some fantastic things to say and, ma- and made a joke about, like, 
like, I'd love to be on more podcasts. So I went up to her and I approached her and said, yeah, I would love to get you on my podcast. And she said, okay, sure. Just don't ask me to come on and talk about anything black. And hmm. happily, yeah. I didn't ever have to say this, but I, I realized, yeah, my first thought was, I'd love to ask you to come on and talk about Black Panther or about Luke Cage. or sure. and, and it wound up, she came on and talked about something completely different that had some people of color in it, but that wasn't the focus in any way. But it really caught me out because it, it, it showed me for myself that I had that idea of like, oh, yeah. It's fine for me as a white person to talk about all this stuff, but if it's a more people of color story, then I need a more people of color guest, you know? And I, actually, as I say that, I kind of like, I do think it's important to get diverse voices, especially when talking about those kind of things. But when it becomes the flip side of, oh yeah, you get the gay guest to come on only to talk about the gay thing, like, that's just another kind of this, like, limitation of, you are a person who has this identity that you're defined by, by the uber culture. And so therefore everything you do should be about that. And I'm, I don't know if you've had that where people like are only kind of asking you to come talk about things as a Chicano person. But, but I think it's a big, I think critical theory helps me to better understand that the Jewish may even of who our guests are can factor into that. So I, I have, I have two thoughts related to that. Um, and one of them is like, just briefly, the, um, one of my concerns about, the discourse surrounding who gets to play what kind of characters in movies and TV shows. We need mm -hmm. X person to play this character because that character is from a certain demographic and we need someone from that demographic. Obviously, that is a meaningful part of the more dimensional representation of these characters. My concern, though, is that at some point that becomes these actors only play these characters yep. because the need is rarely as broad as we would like for it to be. Right. Right. Like if you only have uh, if you only have, let's say, because it, it common in the zeitgeist is like you only have uh, Jewish actors play Jewish characters, for example, I would be concerned that that becomes weaponized as well. You only have Jewish actors when you need Jewish characters. Right. If that makes any sense. But so when we talk about like the, the essentializing of an identity, that is one of those things that's kind of always in the back of my mind. That yeah. being said, you do need you know meaningful representation. I don't want to knock that. Um the, but going back, the other thing, though, is I get asked a lot about Latinx studies. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is part of what I've been formally trained in. But that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I, I can talk competently about uh, Latin issues. I can talk competently about, you know, these sort of things, particularly related to identity and, and what have you. Because uh, certainly I've done a lot of the readings and, and all that kind of stuff. And I continue to do readings on that stuff. But in, in terms of like what my research is, my research is, is actually critical whiteness studies, mm -hmm. which is looking at how whiteness sort of is invisible and permeates so much of our pop culture, in particular in my area, as opposed to other aspects of like education, and what have you. Um, which means I know a little bit about things like... Uh, uh, blackness or Asian identity or indigenous identity or Latinx identity, particularly as they are defined by whiteness. But that's not the same thing as being yeah. an expert in those respective areas. The other thing is most of my training has been informed by a unfortunate side effect of uh, race uh, analysis being relatively new. And that is the black white binary where so mm -hmm. much of our scholarship has to deal with whiteness and blackness. And don't get me wrong. Those are absolutely things that we need even more of. At the right. same time, because there is a um, because of the, the I don't say politics, but like the aspects of producing academic work, that's also what's dominant out there. 
right? Yeah. And so there's a, a lack of these other areas as well. Not to frame this as a, we need more of this than of that, but just a, we need more of everything. But we have the most of is stuff related to whiteness and blackness. I mean, to me, a lot of this comes down to why the kind of more critical discussions are so important because like, and I'm, I'm someone who uses TikTok and who uses Twitter and I love creating content on there. And, and this, I'm not saying this, the, these things invented this, but I think, you know, when discourse is focused on a small number of characters or a small amount of time, mm-hmm. yeah, it's critical theory in a tweet is really difficult. You know, like yeah. Bump, yeah. you can't have a bumper sticker that's more than five lines. And I think that's where a lot of the kind of somewhat binary approaches to these things that that I think often I think are really frustrating and often I want to go a lot deeper into um, come into place. And, you know, it, it's funny just because what you're saying just now also really tied into me with what you're saying about the specificity of identity because I remember there's another content creator who I follow um, who I, I, I'm having trouble remembering who it was exactly and I'll see if I can find it and put in the show notes but they're uh, also Chicano mm-hmm. and they uh, forgive me Chicana and they talked about how when In the Heights was a really big deal and there's a lot of discussion about it they kept being asked like well what do you think about this you're the expert and it'd be like no no I, I am Chicana. Mm-hmm. That show is about like Caribbean immigrant to America, which yeah. yes, we're both under Latina like umbrella, but that experience is very different than mine. And and she, she had a lot of really good things to say about how she didn't feel like she was she was uh, uh, an expert on that because it felt like a very different experience. And I think that's yeah. that again reminds me of the kind of level of. It's really easier for us to see, okay, well, all brown people are going to have brown people thoughts and all black people are going to have very black people thoughts. I get this all the time. You know, I'm a disabled person. I have, I'm an amputee. So half of my life is lived in a wheelchair. Half of it's not. I have an important perspective there. But if you ask me to comment on someone, like when someone asks me to comment on Daredevil, I'll be very careful in saying, I have thoughts in general on disability awareness and why I think some parts of, of Daredevil are good and some parts aren't, but I'm not visually impaired. I'm not blind. Right. And so there's whole parts of that experience that I can't speak to. Yeah. And, and talking about disability in particular, there's also the phenomenon of what's referred to as the, uh, the, the super crip, uh, the super mm-hmm. cripple stereotype, right? Yep. Where in the case of Daredevil, the blindness becomes the feature, not the bug. Right. Yes. Uh, the the disability, and we see this also with autism as well. Right? Is yep. it what was that movie, um, The Predator? I want to say uh, mm-hmm. that came out where they the plot line was basically you find out at the end autism is the next stage in human evolution or something along those lines, which is kind of in the same vein as Rain Man and this idea yep. of the savant, right? Which is supremely dehumanizing to people who are honestly just trying to live in uh, a day to day life. Um, yep. but get categorized as like, oh, you have autism. You must, you know, be super intelligent in this way. And, and you know, you follow enough people on TikTok that have autism. They'll tell you, uh, yeah, I'm good at some things, but also, like, yeah. life is rough because it ain't made for people with autism, right? You, so You're either proving that you've really done the homework or that you've listened to a lot of the podcast. I'm sorry. You're either proving that you've done the homework and listened to a lot of our back episodes or just that we think in similar ways because – the topic of Daredevil's disability is one I've brought up all the time, yeah. and I, I'm contractually obligated to point out that part of this is why I think Toph is such a better disability representation. Toph from oh, yeah. Avatar yeah, The Last yeah. Airbender, because she has superpowers that are connected to her disability, but it doesn't erase her disability the way you said it does. Like To yeah. me... Um, but the other one I wanted to bring up because I think it's so relevant to so much of what we're talking about is uh, I, I think is, I'm pronouncing this correctly Alakwa Cox the woman who plays Echo in the Hawkeye series um, 
is is one of my favorite examples of disability representation because it also ties into getting away from the this character can only play this kind of things. She yeah. is native and she is deaf, which is mm-hmm. not a huge actor pool, but they were able to find someone who was a yeah. very good actress. Mm-hmm. And as it happens, she's also an amputee in exactly the way I am. Sure. She is the best disability representation I've ever seen, in part because they don't give her this leg that has all these like super high ga- gadgets. Yeah. They show that she can move and do martial I can't do the martial arts. She does, but she can. Yeah. But there's a couple of moments in the show where they show her adjusting her leg or like the young girl version is like hiding her leg. Yeah. And they didn't write that character to be an amputee, but the actress was and so they adjusted it. And there's just – I'm now tying together four different thoughts and probably just yeah. meandering. But the, the point being, that to me was a perfect example of the kind of thing I want to see of – it is very representative of what she's written as, but also the actress is representative of some things and they worked it into the story. So that's an excellent example for a couple reasons, especially uh, what you're talking about in terms of the disability informs the character, not becomes the redeeming value of the character. Yeah. Right. At the risk of making it seem like people who have these disabilities are um, have an easier life because of whatever we see on the screen. And you're right. They didn't do the they didn't give her the Tony Stark treatment. Right. Of Like giving her a Mach 6 uh, leg or something along those lines Um, at the same time. Echo is canonically uh, indigenous. I believe she's Cherokee, but also Mexican. And we didn't get any of that Mexican Latinidad in the thing. At least not that I can recall. We saw her father, but we don't know anything about her mother necessarily. Mm -hmm. However, and this gets to the idea of like critical theory is hard to do in a tweet. Like we don't need to put that in a binary opposition of either this is good or this is bad. Right. Right. We need to look for what are the redeeming values here. We can recognize that, okay, they didn't emphasize any sort of Latinidad. We don't even know if she's uh, Latina in the, or Chicana in the, in the show and as it's constituted in the text. That being said, there's a lot of really good here. Yeah. And that, that area where they didn't cover this particular thing can be used elsewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, she's yeah. getting her own show, and I'm yeah. really excited. And, and to me, it's also just a great way of how – like, to me, if you and I had a longer conversation about her character, which actually I would love to invite you back when we get to, to her show, yeah. I feel like there's so much of her character's experience that you can speak to in a way that I don't really understand. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, I, I haven't seen your legs because I'm looking for the chest up. I'm get, From what you said, I don't think you're an amputee. Um, I'm not. And I, so I think there's parts of her experience that I can speak to in ways that you cannot, you know? And that yeah. it doesn't make either one of us the definitive voice on her. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot, even me... A lot of my disability experience is very tied up mm-hmm. in race and things like that. I think I have had a level of privilege of being access to the medical resources and the financial resources sure. that her character hasn't. So I'm not going to say that I have uh, – even my experience of being disabled is very different than hers, mm-hmm. both the actress and the character. But yeah, just, I think this is what is so important is that we – we're able to look at like no one is just a black character or just a queer character or just yeah. a disabled character. Everyone has all of these different layers and and complexities that all fit into these large societal narratives. Right. And so when we analyze these uh, these representations, uh, these symbols, um, using something like a a critical approach, whatever specific critical approach we may choose to use, whether that's race, class, gender, disability or any others, um, it's important to sort of emphasize how these characters then fit into larger trends, right? Because you look at someone like Echo, uh, who Native American women have often been reduced to the trope of the squaw, right? Right. Which is that they are so much more violent 
than even their male counterparts or things like that, or that they are uh, sexually promiscuous, however, and that in and mm-hmm. of itself is through the, the lens of a particular sexual ethic and what have you. And with Echo, we get someone who actually enacts a degree of mercy, right? Because she has Clint on the ropes there mm-hmm. at the end and chooses to not uh, execute him, even though she would, you know, ostensibly within the context of the narrative be within her rights. Um, so we're getting some some pushback against that. One of my uh, favorite things um, about the first Black Panther movie is that each of the main characters is, or I won't say each of them, most of the main characters are subversions of stereotypes that have been used against the black American community, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, you have the Mammy stereotype of a uh, heavyset matriarchal figure who is uh, desexualized and is only good at caring for other people's children, not her own, right? Uh, and in Ramonda, you have a character who is combining both, not just uh, combining beauty with being a mother and, you know, doing what she can for her children and things like that and being a good mom by any demonstrable metric, um, uh, as well as pushing back against that idea of only existing in the spaces of others. She has her own. Right. Or the one that is a little bit of a stretch that I have to convince people of is um, the the trope of the tragic mulatto, which is the uh, the idea of a white uh, of, a, of a black person who has a white parent. Right. Right. The trope being usually in reference to women, but broadly speaking, the trope being that like, well, they the potential they have, they have the potentiality of whiteness. Right. They could be great were it not for their black ancestry. Mm-hmm. Right. Which uh, hamstrings them in some way, shape or form in the narrative. And you kind of have that with Killmonger a little bit, because while he's not biracial, he is biethnic, right? Right. He has a African-American mother and he has a uh, Wakandan father. And in that case, actually, the, the part that brings him down is the tragedy and the trauma, uh, not so much because of his uh, ancestry. So they're getting away from that. But this idea of having to struggle and bridge two worlds and that right. is a difficult thing. And yet he has uh, uh, he has some degree of success in that. Right. Mm-hmm. So and he's entirely capable. His his downfall then is like the, the the personal hurt, not because of anything intrinsic to him as like his genetic composition or anything like that. Right. So, yeah. Anyway. You know, I, I hear you saying and Let me let me see if I can uh, take that a little further and, and tell me if I'm kind of on the right track of the way critical analysis looks. Critical theory looks at these kind of things like. I don't – obviously the people of Wakanda and T'Challa and all the rest of them are not white by any means. Sure. But they – and I think this is part of what the movie is getting at is that a lot of – like when you talk about white privilege, a lot of it is about not having the experience of blackness in a world of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And Wakandans, at least in Wakanda itself, if I – like – and because they are so isolated – they are experiencing blackness that isn't in a world of white supremacy and that a lot of T'Challa and and their reactions to someone like Killmonger is they mm-hmm. haven't had his experience. And a lot of both what Killmonger and Nakia are trying to get T'Challa to understand, which he does by the end of the movie, is we need to go out and help those people who are living in the world of white supremacy that we are not. Um, yeah. is, is that kind of a fair analysis, you think? That is a fair analysis. And let me complicate it a little bit. Uh, please do. Please do. Because I firmly believe in not enjoying things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but OK. So let's let's, let's look, look, that. Because I, that's my a, favorite episode about Andor was all about how this amazing, incredible TV show mm-hmm. left a lot of things on the table that it didn't deal 
deal with well in terms of the the indigenous uh, storyline yeah. characters. So they, I'm all about ruining things. Go for it. They literally introduced MMIW, Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women, right, <laughs> in episode one. And we're like, no, not again. <laughs> what? Anyway, so, yeah, you're right. Like, that is a part of the thing when uh, in Black Panther of, you know, these other people live in the world of white supremacy and we can do something. We have the means to help them. But also, we can come to some reasonable conclusions about how Wakanda operates. Number one, Wakanda is an empire. I would suggest they're a colonizing empire. Mm-hmm. The difference is the uh, if, if colonization is defined in part by uh, an extractionary practice, they're not extracting resources uh, in terms of raw materials. They're extracting information mm. because they okay. have the war dog program, right? right? They have spies everywhere. They need not, they want for nothing in terms of material resources, but they need information. And so they, they do engage in that colonial endeavor. The other thing is uh, an inevitable offshoot of colonization is the creation of racial or ethnic hybrids, mm. which is where we get Killmonger, right? Right. Another component of this is there is all there appears to be a caste system in Wakanda, right? You notice you have the border tribe who are part of who are the military. You have the merchant tribe. You have the mining tribe. You have four different tribes in addition to the panther tribe, right? And this suggests a class system, right, where things are kind of static. Yeah. That also means there are probably people in that country who are experiencing not the same, but similar oppression that the African-Americans in uh, in Oakland uh, are experiencing, right? Where we get mm-hmm. Killmonger, right? So how much of that are they blind to, or let me back up, how much of that are they not paying attention to in their own country? Yeah. Right? And so this is actually something I wrote about in a, in a uh, edited collection um I have a website, gacruzphd.com, shameless plug, uh, where you can go read my book chapter on it. It's called uh, My Blood Right, uh, Killmonger, Colonialism, and, and the Wakandan Empire. Uh, mm. um, I think if I'm remembering my own title correctly. Anyway, but that's this kind of idea. So, like, when we talk about, you know, Black Panther as a symbol of Afrofuturism, absolutely, absolutely. And it exists in the media landscape in our own world in opposition to what have been a history and a continued practice of dehumanizing African-Americans and black folks. Uh, through, you know, some really unfortunate discourse in the form of the symbols that we see on screen. At the same time, Wakanda's not without its problems. Yeah. And I I think that kind of analysis is what's so helpful. And and for me, one thing that makes me think about a lot is um, I'm someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, um, and I I, I came out to myself as queer when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I did so in the time of AIDS, when AIDS and HIV, I mean, and there's still real concerns. Please keep being safe, uh, safer sex and all that. But it's a very different experience than it is today, where, you know, at that point, AIDS was a literal death sentence for that overwhelming majority of people. Uh, and then and then it was for anyone who couldn't afford these incredibly expensive medications. Happily, a lot of that's changed, but still not fully fixed. But one of the things that it meant was when we started to get stories about gay people who are almost always gay men, if, they, if A, someone had to die of AIDS in the story, and on the one hand, that is realistic to that time, but also it made for incredibly depressing stories... But also it meant that your hero was often the person who was not sexually promiscuous and thus was able to escape HIV yeah. and AIDS. And yeah. and there were some great – but I, and I, I had never even really thought of this until I started dating my current partner who is a little bit younger than me and had been very interested in gay literature. 
and and she talked about how what she wanted was was stories about queer people that did not involve queer trauma. You know, yeah. where there yeah. wasn't a person who got HIV and died, or there wasn't a person who got thrown out of their fam, they got thrown out by their family and had this terrible experience, or like got gay bashed and had this terrible experience. And I'd never thought about it that way until they pointed out, yeah, all the stories about queer people that were being told mostly by straight people all had to involve one of those things. Mm-hmm. And we're now starting to get more stories that don't have that and how important that is. And to me, that just, it's, it's, I guess I'm kind of off on a tangent here, but it ties into all the stuff you're saying about like, you know, you look at the stories deeper and see what, what are all these subtexts that are being told again and again and how can stories subvert that? Yeah. And, and this, the pointing out these, these, what we would consider to be critiques doesn't mean you can't enjoy the thing, Right. For sure. Um, you can, you know, it's it's a weird politics of what we do and don't support and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, even as as uh, as someone I know put it, uh, Harry Potter is a pretty good but formative text for a lot of people written by an unfortunate person. Um, yeah. But even I, think about like the I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I keep interrupting you. So you, no, you keep going. Sorry. I was going to say, but even think about the politics of like of watching the movies. Like you're putting money in J.K. Rowling's pocket, yeah, and also Daniel Radcliffe, and also Emma Watson, and also Rupert Grant, and also you know uh, the estate of uh, of uh, oh my goodness, Severus Snape, uh, Alan Rickman. Uh, right. Yeah. So like, there is a weird politics there, right? So it is is one of those kind of uh, murky areas. That being said, one thing that came to mind was, um, so there's a podcast I love called Old Gods of Appalachia, mm. uh, which is a horror anthology uh, series set in a alternate version of our world where everything's basically the same, except that the Appalachian Mountains are a prison for some elder evil. Uh, and as someone who's grown up in the foothills of Appalachia, I get it. That scans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but one of the things is like, I don't, there's two primary writers, uh, the, uh, Steve Schnell, I believe is the, is the guy who founded it. And I believe he's, um, come out recently in the last couple of years as being bisexual, but he and his partner, uh, who I don't know if she's queer or not, but, um, they have a, a, a one of their guiding, um, um, ethos is, is we don't kill our queers as they put mm, it, yeah. right. With the exception of maybe one character. That has been the case, right? right? Uh, and even then, I think when that character died, it, it, it was done off camera and not in a, like, grotesque way, right? But it's this idea of, like, they have queer characters all the time. They have, um, I remember there was a character I didn't even recognize immediately as trans, but was very clearly trans, like, the second mm-hmm. time I listened to it, it, was like, oh, wait, how did I miss that kind of thing? That are, that they, they deal with things, certainly. And this is a world with supernatural evils, and that's absolutely a component to this. But also, that's not like their suffering isn't related to that. Yeah. Right. I mean, and just to give you that idea, like, of how deep this is, there's a literal trope that is talked about often called barrier gaze, which is mm-hmm. about how, how incredibly frequent it is that if a gay character shows up, that one of the two of them are going to die. Oh, yeah. Um, and, as you're talking about that, it kind of ties into something that has been a, a question we've been asking on this podcast a lot. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on because not only is there a whole thing about problematic faves, favorites and all that, and like I'm someone who will never spend money on uh, J.K. Rowling stuff again, but mm-hmm. I still spend money on Disney stuff, and that has all sure. this problem. And, you know, and so I think you're right. It's so complicated in all these different directions. Um, although, God damn it, I need some queer person to start a really good southern fried chicken chain because <laughs> – 
I I'm never eating Chick Fil A again. But damn, sure. I miss it because I really liked yeah. it. Um, and I've got eight tangents mm-hmm. in my head here. Um, quick aside, the um, medication that a lot of us who have ADHD take has run out of stock, and it's not being talked about. I think oh. because most of us who want to talk about it are all people with ADHD who are currently unmedicated. Not the best organizing group, but so executive I, function is not <laughs> operating. <laughs> that's that's like a mean joke, <laughs> right? The the the, the thing yeah. that people tell us is we have to call each individual pharmacy, find mm-hmm. one that has it, and then call our doctor quickly before that pharmacy runs out of it. I'm like, have you met an ADHD? It's, it's like telling an amputee you got to walk to the store. It's like, are you do you understand the problem? I had a prosthetist whose office was up a flight of stairs. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) To go back from this tangent off to the two other tangents I wanted to say, and then I promise I'll get to your main point. Yeah. But I was also thinking on the problematic faves thing. Um, I mean, you and I are both self-identified Christians. Mm -hmm. There's some not great stuff in in our favorite works, as well as some Uh really bad fan fiction that has been told about the Bible for a long time. That's a great way to put it, yeah. Right? (laughs) But getting back to the original point you were making, um, it, well, and getting to the tangential question I wanted to ask, because I, I, to me, one of the hardest parts of living in this world of incredible complexity is how do you interact in this world when there is a thing that you have some negative feelings about, and then there's a whole bunch of other people who, for very, very different and terrible reasons, also have negative feelings about you know, and like we, for example, we, for example, my co-host, um, uh, Paul Hoppy, who's very often on both this and my other podcast, he's talked at length about how he wishes there was a uh, more development of Padme's story. Uh, sorry, of, 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 he has said at length that he wishes there was more development of Ray's story, mm-hmm. in part because for him, he loves that character so much and he wants to see so much more of her. And then he, he talks a lot about how it's very difficult when you, you realize that most of the people who say they wish Ray's story was more developed are coming at it from a very different perspective of being super sexist and like, oh, she's yeah. not a real Jedi or she's not this kind of stuff. Um, and and I, I certainly had similar experiences of, I think, when you get into the complexity, one of the problems is you're starting to make critiques that look on the surface like critiques that a lot of people are making in very bad faith. And, you know, how do you, how do you yeah. talk about that when you're like, I'm not that, but still there is, because I think there can be a, because racists and sexists are attacking it, therefore we should never critique it at all. So I have this thought about bad faith arguments in the same vein that I have thoughts about, like, wondering about people's motivations for justice. Mm. Uh, because I find that... Um, and I want to be clear that I'm not trying to delegitimize or, or argue against the, the, you know, the very real traumas that people experience. But sometimes we run the risk of weaponizing our marginality in mm-hmm. a way that we are advocating for perspectives that are more about how what would make us feel satisfied as opposed to what would do the most good. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Which I sort of see sometimes in the um, the uh, pardon me if I'm being reductive the young white leftists who become fascists. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but it's this idea of intent and motivation and that kind of thing. And so when we talk about like these, these good or bad faith arguments, like when people say, well, I didn't like the writing of episode uh, nine. So, okay. I need you to be specific. I need you to prove to me, you know, a three act structure from a hole in the ground. Yeah. Because otherwise you're just parroting a point. Right. Um, 
it also kind of like you play D and D. Okay, so I, I've been trying hard not to stare at the D and D books I see on your shelf behind you. Yes, um, one of the the, the, the Fizzbands Treasury of Dragons was my birthday gift to me. I've, I've seldom been uh, more pleased. Uh, nice. So, um, but so the five foot range. Right. The immediate mm-hmm. five foot range. My question is always like, OK, this is your critique of this thing. What are you doing in your five foot range? Yeah. Right. Like, are you helping anybody in a particular way in as much as you can? Because we all have different limitations on this kind of stuff, what we can and cannot do. So, like, if your argument is um, you dislike race character, but I also know that you are like helping to promote, you know, uh, the uh, women authors or, right. you know, non-binary authors or people like that. Not okay. just Ahsoka. Not just, <laughs> not just characters that are meant, that are written to be secondary to the narrative for the purpose of male gratification. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, are you actually, what are you doing to actually propagate positive, like representations or de- uh, dimensional depictions, right? Right. Of these people in other, in other areas that you are also active, right? That's part of wh- what I get at. Or what I think about. So, like, um, it, it's also a matter of, like, personal understanding. It's, it's you talk about Chick-fil-A for a minute. Like, uh, I have friends who are gay who enjoy uh, the use of recreational drugs. Um, and I have, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Never have. It's never been of interest to me. And part of that is because as a Mexican-American, I am also keenly aware that, like, my father hadn't been able to go back to Mexico since, like, 2008, in large part because of conflict related to the cartels. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the the Mexican drug cartels and their trade and the market in the United States has been imminently affecting my family. Um, that being said, I understand that, like, you know, I got a, uh, I've had buddies who were queer who like need to take the edge off at the end of the day. I get it. Right. Um, for the same reasons that I know people who have grown up in abusive households uh, who love Harry Potter because Harry Potter was an abused child and that gave them some degree of resonance. I'm going to fault them because they like J.K. Rowling's work. Right. Right. Uh, So it's uh, there's there's that human intimate level of this, because if if we're not bearing in mind, if we're only dealing with even our our, our close relationships as broad symbolic terms, then we are inherently dehumanizing a relationship. Mm, Right. Yeah. And community is very important. Um, So that also gets this idea of like sort of human understanding and and, and mercy and allowance. Uh, But when in those spaces, it is kind of weird. It's like it's like men's rights stuff. There there are actual issues that affect men. Uh, uniquely mm-hmm. that we need to talk about, but also like the, the MRA folks are egregiously offensive individuals usually yeah. who at best care superficially about those problems. And usually in regard to using them as like cudgels against other people. Yeah. Right. I, I think that's such the perfect example of it because you're right. Like, and that's someone I, 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 my recent joke has been I'm not a man, but I play one on TV uh, sure. in that like I'm, I'm non-binary, but I'm masculine passing and I certainly have a whole bunch of male privilege still and all kind of things like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I mean, I, I still remember how when my parents got divorced and my father had primary custody, that was shocking to people because they were so used to that. And there have been, yeah. I think there are ways that toxic masculinity has harmed me that I think are important to talk about, but I'm... I, I always feel both it is important to do, but also I feel I need to. Anytime I talk about that, I'm always going to say, I'm not saying that we have it harder. I'm not saying this is a racist patriarchy. I'm not saying any of that. Mm-hmm. But I'm, And I, I always have to be, as you said, very careful about I'm now standing – I am now in danger of standing next to some people. Um, I mean, 
tying it back to the other thing that I kind of mentioned as a joke, but I think is true. For me as someone who is Christian and continues to claim Christianity in a world where that has done so much harm to so many of the people I love and so many of the communities I know, mm-hmm. and for my kid, particularly around like queer issues and things like that, but also, you know, racism. Like you, you talked about the faith militant, which can have some really good sides through crusades. It's also kind of tied to that, you know. Not great, not our best moment. (laughs) (laughs) And so I always feel a need to sort of say, yes, I'm Christian, but I I am not that, you know, and I'm not, um, I don't want to define myself against that. That's a topic we've talked about a lot within progressive Christianity. Um, But, but certainly there, that, that there's a need to kind of recognize when you claim a position, who is standing near you? And yeah. how important it is to sort of separate yourself from that. And, and that part of that can be to be like, look, I'm not just a bumper sticker. Like, I think there can be um, some problems with these things. And the other thing that, that I wanted to, that I think ties into that kind of with what you're saying was, it's also where I think it's really important to be able to look at a conversation that's happening and saying, I'm a listener in this conversation. I shouldn't necessarily be the dominant voice. And sure. I'll give you a, a, a recent example. Um, that uh, this is going to be some spoilers for Wakanda Forever, the new Black Panther movie. But if you're anywhere near any of the ads, you probably know this already, that the primary antagonist for a lot of that movie is uh, Namor and the uh, the people who he is leading, who are all very rooted in Mexican and, and indigenous to that area uh, stories. I've seen some people who are – I've seen some – uh, folks of those backgrounds talking about how much they loved that story and how much they thought it was amazing representation. I've seen others who were very frustrated by it and that they had sure. to be – their representation was as fairly militant and as the antagonists. Um, I'm very interested in that discussion. I don't think my opinion on the discussion is terribly relevant. I think it's much it, – and, and I, I don't think that I can just say, oh, well – these people said it, so therefore I can speak for all people. I can say I know how all you know Chicano or Indigenous Mexican or whatever speak, because I have to recognize that there's an internal dialogue there that only am I not a part of, mm-hmm. but that is a lot deeper than just what I would want to say. It, it is one of those sort of tricky things. So I, I think about like how uh, we mentioned critical race theory earlier, which is a um, which has come to be a umbrella term for different approaches to looking at how institutions reproduce racist outcomes originally mm-hmm. with uh, legal theory and then later with um, uh, like education um, and and other things as well and we have to also recognize that a lot of the that some of the foundational uh, scholars were not people of color they were white mm-hmm. right and we can take what's useful and then push back against what's not right because that's yep. how that's how ideas get better, and it kind of reminds me. I, uh, pardon me if I if I should know this, but uh, are you? Do you have any relationship to the South? I mean, you uh, said Texas earlier, but like, yeah, I mean, my grandmother's fa- my my mother's family is from the South, and I mm-hmm. went to visit there. And I will say that um, <laughs> I, I was recently talking with someone about like, do I qualify as Jewish ethnically because it's my father and the like? Mm-hmm. And my response was, well, when I was seven and I told the little girl that my father was Jewish and she asked me to feel my horns, that certainly felt like she thought I was Jewish. Um, uh, I got but, a similar response when I was when I ha- I used to have really long hair and I was told that oh y'all grow out your hair to hide your horns. It's like I what? I, no, that's that's a Jewish thing. That's not your that's, thing. I didn't mean to appropriate. Certainly, don't, don't, don't mean to appropriate the stereotype. But yeah, they're like Catholic men grow out their hair because they're they're hiding their horns. It's like, well, first of all, they would point outward. But two, yeah. what? 
<laughs> anyway, though, yeah. But so, like, yeah, I, I, I don't have much experience of the South other than, um, you know, my grandmother's family and a love of some parts of country music and an awareness in the last 10 years that I probably have a lot of fairly bigoted ideas of the South from being a, a liberal Northeasterner that sure. I've been trying to slowly unpack. Um, you so far uh, acquitted, yourself, acquitted yourself of being a uh, very uh, uh, likable Yankee. Um, well, thank you. But no. I'm a hardcore Mets fan, so I do object when Southerners call me Yankee. <laughs> but I get that that term has yeah. different meanings as well. The, the reason I bring that up is there's a, there's a joke in the South. Uh, what do you call 16 rednecks in a room? Uh, a full blood Cherokee. Um, mm. And the joke is everyone down here claims to be some kind of indigenous person. Right. In, in a blood quantum kind of way. And there's all kinds of negativity and, and unfortunate understandings that go along with that. That being said, that phenomenon has kind of shown up with, and it's not new. This is a thing that's gone back decades, certainly. Uh, but in terms of how people have latched onto Namor being indigenous and people saying, well, this is Latino representation. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear about something here. Like these are. Uh, this is an indigenous representation of a particular group of the Maya, not even all of the Maya, right? This is the Yucatec Maya specifically. Um, However, going back to the idea of like opinions that matter and whatnot, like a lot of us have relationships or lack thereof and their lack of relationship is still a relationship with indigeneity, with with Mm -hmm. a native identity. Um, my father identifies as mestizo, which is a term that some people absolutely hate to use because it's a reference to the Spanish caste system of, right. of indigenous peoples where mestizos were the combination, excuse me, the combination of the indigenous plus the Spanish and were like at middle rank of the, on the caste system beneath them being the in actual indigenous people, as well as the, uh, Africans, uh, who were brought over through slavery. Um, but certainly beneath the Europeans, the, but like, and he was told as a young man in school, like, okay, they're Apache. Uh, and, and I've talked to my, my biological side of the family and they don't know, they know they they come from Indians or from natives, but they don't know to what extent they're broadly detribalized, that kind yeah. of thing. So I have a relationship with this character as a symbol of indigeneity, as someone who has a native ancestry, but I don't have like a living, breathing native identity. Yeah. Right. So when people say, well, what are you? Because that's a question I've gotten from time to time. It's like, well, you know, I'm a Mexican-American. I have some native ancestry and that kind of thing. But does the fact that I'm not indigenous mean that I can't weigh in on this thing? And what I would say to that is, first of all, it's not a, it's not a matter of can you or can't you. Anyone can do anything. Sure. Right. Also true. The question is, is your thought productive? Does it yeah. advance the perspective? And are our race, our ethnicity is not our sole qualifier. It is a component of how we, uh, it is a part of that which informs the human instrument of the lived experience for understanding the world around us, but it is also not the soul in and of itself. Right. Right. So if you were to have a perspective on the, the, the native representation, the indigenous representation or the blackness in Wakanda forever or things like that, like, I think personally, like as individuals talking, that's a worthy conversation to have. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts and, you know, maybe we can come to a mutual understanding. And as much as I'm qualified to talk about those things based on my lived experience, my education, but also the fact that I'm not black. Right. Um, At the same time, though, there is that responsibility of, okay, well, how do I voice this in a public way? Yeah. Whether it's through TikTok, a podcast, Instagram or whatever. Right. 
Um, so I always, I, I don't want people to feel like they can't take part in the conversation, but like what you said earlier, part of a conversation is just listening Yep. and, and having an informed opinion later. And I think it also really comes down to the context of it. You know, like mm-hmm. if you and me are talking uh, as, as friendly, which we're sort of hope we're going to do, I'm loving getting to, to know you more through this. Yeah, that's a different frame than, for example, than if I am asked to be a guest on someone else's podcast versus the conversation I hold on my own. Um, I, I mentioned to you off air before we got started that it's very intentional that this podcast has not done an episode on Black Panther. And I don't know if we will. We will reference it in other things. But part of that was for me because, again, I know that I have the resources and ability to create a podcast. And a lot of people are doing that right now. And my thought was if someone Google, if someone goes into iTunes or Spotify or something like that and they Google Black Panther to find a podcast about it, I, I didn't want there to be one more white voice that was coming up on the list as one of the first things they were going to find. Sure. And I think that that's, um, you know, but I also really appreciate what you're saying. that Because it, it, it's, again, it's, to me, if the takeaway is if you're not in the group, you shouldn't talk about the group's issues, that's one more way that we need to get more critical and we need to get, get deeper on these things. Because to me, okay. like, you know the whole con- – I think I saw you make a couple of No Nuance November uh, talks, but you didn't make very many, and I, I and I, I made only one, which was the only thing I can say without nuance is I love nuance because I just like, yeah. you know, and I, I'm not attacked. I think there's some great no nuance November posts out there, but with all this stuff, I just I, I think yeah. it's my again I I, don't, I think it's, it narrows critical theory down way too much to say it's just about being more complex, yeah. but to some level it is. It's about saying that nothing, very few things are as simple as what we want them to be. The the other thing to to keep in mind, and this is part of that complexity, is that like there are no social movements that have not had success without members of the dominant caste, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, any of the civil rights movements uh, that we've had in the United States in the 20th century or 21st century have ab- absolutely involved the blood, sweat, tears, and literal sacrifices of people of color, as well as required assistance from members of whatever dominant uh uh, class we're talking about, right. right? Whether that was white folks with the civil rights movement, whether that was um, people in power in, uh, in in agriculture, in terms of the uh, Mexican uh, uh, American civil rights movement, um, having to do a lot with farm labor, or heterosexual people in the uh, in the queer rights, uh, gay rights movement of the mm-hmm. 1970s and things like that. There's always had to be that. There has to be some degree of support there. But what yeah. that support looks like comes in a very uh, a variety of different ways, and it it. I would I would say that it's not that people from those groups don't belong in the conversations, but their voices don't need to be one, the ones that are prioritized. Right. Um, at the same time, I think about like uh, I, I had a buddy who was at a he was his um, he was given a, a presentation. This was years ago when we were in grad school. He's in my PhD program, and he also studies comics. And he is a, a white fella from Indiana. Um, born in Scotland and mm-hmm. raised in Indiana, uh, and <laughs> a lovely human being. But he's talking about Luke Cage season one, right when it came out, mm-hmm. and the aspect of respectability politics, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and he's got you know we're he's talking about this stuff, and we're we're, we're he's finding out his idea and all that kind of stuff. And it's like okay, it sounds like good work, whatever. Um, <laughs> worth noting, very few black people in our PhD program. Uh, and he, we get to the conference. This is like at the National Communication Association. Uh, so this is the national conference for the field. And he's there on a panel and he's the only white guy in the room. Uh, everyone else is black. And then there's me. And he, he has this moment of like, oh no, 
He's and he says, "What do I do if like I get something wrong?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, a couple things to bear in mind. One, by virtue of being an outsider, you're almost certainly going to get something wrong." Right. I said, "So just accept that. Doesn't mean you can't say anything of value, but it does mean like you're probably going to get something wrong." Two, members of the group get things wrong about their group because we're not monolithic. We all have different ideas. Right. So Cause, cause the whole idea that there is the right thing about the group is itself. Yeah. Automatic in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It suggests that there is a one true way to be. Right. Right. I said, so here's what you're going to do. You get up there. You give your presentation. I've heard it. it sounds pretty good. Um, people will respond to it. They'll either one say nothing or two. They'll say it's good or B or, or three. They'll say that, well, there's some problems and here's why. And if they say here are some things I identified as problems, like listen and accept it. And then, like, take that moving forward into your research in academia. Um, and by the way, he gave his presentation and people loved it. They complimented on his ideas. They thought this is really cool. Right. But integral to that is some self-awareness on his part where he was thinking, OK, I may have gotten some things wrong here. And he you got to be receptive to the critique. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's very true. And I think that's why. Especially having all those voices in the room becomes so important because, you know, I think like, like, you know, someone like Echo, you might look at her primarily as a character who is deaf and Latina and then, or deaf and indigenous. And then someone else comes along and goes, okay, but actually there's an amputee aspect here. Like bring that voice yeah. into the conversation. Um, we've gone on a while. I don't want, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but let me, try, let me kind of use this as a closing thing as a way to kind of like, let's see how we approach, uh, how we use critical theory to look at this. I, I know you've talked about Andor a little bit. I'm, and I, we've talked Andor to death over on the Star Wars podcast I do, so I promise we won't go too far into it. Yeah. But it's a good example, I think. I'm curious your thoughts on the character of Nemec. Um, Nemec, for those who haven't seen the show, and don't mind me spoiling them a little bit, um, is a uh, he is presented as a fairly young, white presenting. And granted, race didn't used to matter in Star Wars. Now it kind of does with ingenuity being a thing. But clearly he is he is more connected to sort of the, the power classes in Star Wars. Although it's revealed, well, it's revealed that he was part of the foster care system which is re- and juvenile detention system, which is really bad. But then that's told to us by someone who's later told that he's an unreliable narrator. So put that right. aside. But the point is that he has written a manifesto, a manifesto of how rebellion should happen. And he was what I immediately thought of when you talked about kind of the young leftists, um, some of whom become fascists, which I think is another character on the show is a great example of. But but also, I think there's definitely a propensity of, and it's something I try to be very aware of, of the the academic leftist who has all of these great ideas and all these great thoughts, but hasn't really spent much time with the people that they're trying to liberate. You know, one of my first jobs was a union organizer, and I had studied Marxism in college. And like a 21-year-old, I thought going and talking to all of these hotel workers about Marx would be a great way to help them organize a union. Uh, Plot twist, I was very wrong. Um, (laughs) And he's presented as someone who has a lot of these great uh, attitudes. And and, uh, unfortunately, he dies in a tragic way, and that's a, a big part of the story. But one of my other guests who had an earlier kind of really made me think about it in a different way, and that person was also a person of color. <clears throat> that person, that guest, AJ, is a person of color, and he was saying that that he saw Nemec as the the white person who talks a lot of big ideas but hasn't yet put their ideas into practice and who they're there for some good deal of suspicion about. <clears throat> and, and that kind of, for me, kind of put words into something I'd already been giving a lot of thought to. 
but just the, the, the role that Nemec plays as the person who is, he's younger than most, he comes across as a lot more innocent than most, <clears throat> and so you wonder how much of the suffering of the Empire has he felt. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's entirely possible he felt quite a lot, which you don't know, yeah. but he's the one with all the big ideas. He's the one with all these theories and stuff like that. What's kind of your take on his character? Because it felt like that there's so many different dimensions you could unpack there, either positive or negative. First of all, he died in one of the worst ways for me to imagine personally, and that is being crushed, right? Yep. Like he was already wounded and then the, the friggin' uh, the, the cargo crushed him. Uh, but you ever read The Wheel of Time? Uh, no, but I have, okay. I have friends who know it quite well, so I know a good deal about it. So uh, Wheel of Time was written by Robert Jordan, who was a veteran of one of the foreign wars, maybe Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can see he's working through some things when he writes mm -hmm. Wheel of Time, yeah. right? Uh, there's a great line in there from uh, during a civil war of sorts where someone says, sometimes there are no good choices. And you think, Robert, what did you do? Uh, but there's this other variation of a phrase that keeps showing up that relates to Nemec. And that is um, like at one point, a general says, like, you know, uh, no plan survives the first sword draw. No, yeah. uh, no plan survives the, the first arrow. first contact with an enemy. Yeah, first contact. With, yeah. Or one of my favorite versions in real life is I forget who said it, but it was a, a boxer that said, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, and it's that kind of thing. I think that Nemec was a good example of of an idealistic hopeful from a particular experience. Right. And it's important to bear in mind that when we talk about rebellions, uh, when we talk about any kind of social movement, a particular experience is not the defining experience. It's a relevant one. It's an important one, but it isn't the defining one. And so when we talk about Nemec, we also have to bear in mind all the reasons other people are involved in mm -hmm. the rebellion as well. We can't let that be the sole voice that defines it. And also Nemec, he wasn't combat proficient, right? Mm -hmm. You get this from Andor. You also get this from uh, the other fellow. What's his name? Um his, his sort of buddy, you know, the one who ends up being a unreliable narrator, that guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I remember him. I can't place his name at the moment. Right. Who we're led to believe has some sort of military uh, background or, or, or training or whatever. Um, and Nimic falls victim to that thing of, uh, you know, the young don't belong in battle uh, mm -hmm. sort of thing. Which is also kind of curious because those guys were young at one point serving in battle and they survived. Um, but when we look at Nemec as an archetype, what he means to me is he helps to breathe some life into those who have become cynical, mm. right? Uh, he helps to, he is a part of why Andor has that radicalization throughout, but he also wasn't successful in doing that with that other fellow, the one who like tries to run off with the money, right? Right. So he is something of an inoculation against cynicism and being jaded. I think that's of value. At the same time, it's like when you look at his, the excerpts we get from him versus the excerpts we get from. Uh, Marva and her speech? No, no, no. Actually, I was thinking of the, the older fella who goes after Andor, um, the one who's pulling the strings in the antique shop. Oh, oh Luthien. Luthien. Yeah, yeah. Luthien. I called um, him Skarsgård for a while, but no. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I knew he was one of the Skarsgårds, but yeah, yeah Luthien. Um, when he says, you know, I burn my life to make a sunrise I will never see. Yeah. Right? And both of those have their own kind of inspiration to them. I'm putting my money on Skarsgård personally mm -hmm. <laughs> because he survived. But it's also important to not discount the perspective of Nemec because it's easy in particular when you do like when you do critical work like is my job and when it's you know I joke with my students I'm here to ruin the things you love 
uh, like it's easy to become jaded and you need those reminders yeah. um, while also maintaining the fact that like, okay, that's, that's one person's reason for the rebellion. Right. And, and I think that's so good because I think Luthen, I mean, again, I don't want to go too much into this, but I, I think in some ways, like if you start with a new hope and return to the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back, which is the kind of, I think there's a lot of depth to those, but mostly it's awesome lightsaber battles and spaceships. And there's very clearly defined good and evil. Yes. And then you get all the way down to the point of Andor, where our heroes are doing very heroic things, like holding guns to the heads of children and quite possibly going to shoot them if they don't get their way, Mm -hmm. and deciding that these 30 people should die because you don't want to reveal that you've got a spy, and... And tacitly participating in genocide. (laughs) And and taking the attitude of, we need the things to get worse so that more people will realize that they're bad, which if it sounds familiar, remind yourself of anybody who said, no, I want Trump to win so that people uh, realize how bad the system is. Like, yeah. And to, to me, it's like, and I kind of feel like Andor is critical and out, critical theory as approach, as, a, as, as you said that. I think Andor is when critical theory looks at Star Wars, because it's just looking at like the rebellion isn't all mm-hmm. bread and roses and goodness. The Empire wasn't all mustache-twirling villains. It's some people who just wanted to see the, the cool star show and on a planet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it, it is asking, to me, Andor is asking so many hard questions about Star Wars that most things don't. So is that a fair theory that, like, Andor is kind of critical theory as applied to Star Wars? I think it definitely takes a critical approach yeah. uh, in a sort of meta-narrative kind of way, um, in the way that it problematizes Andor as a hero. Right. Because uh, mm-hmm. he's he is literally just looking out for himself and maybe one or two other people. He's looking for his sister, but also like chose to kill that man. Yeah. Right. In episode one, like he didn't have to. Um, but the first guy was an accident. The second one was a choice. And that's also where we get to the aspect of like, OK, how we're constructing Latinidad within uh, Star Wars and the aspect because they keep making it related to criminality. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, even with like uh, Poe Dameron, right, being a uh, spice smuggler and all that stuff. Well, and how many um, how many of the characters we meet who used to work for the Empire are black, oh, yeah. you know, from Finn to the people on this to Londo who didn't work for the Empire. You know, it, it, it's yeah. a long thing. It, it is. And although I would argue that if handled better, we could get a, uh, a discourse on how marginalized people have historically upheld oppressive systems um mm. whether by necessity or by choice right? right so but that's but again that's not exactly something they get into right so no i i think andor is a great critical approach to uh star wars through the narrative through the the universe of star wars um especially with like the plot line with like mon Mothma, mon Mothma, excuse me oh god uh, yeah and the and the idea of can you actually reform a system or bring about revolution from inside the system and what does that cost you those kind of things um even even Tim with two M's, right? Everyone in Star Wars gets these crazy new names, except it's, you've got Luke and you've got Tim. Tim. Well, Luke is better than Luke, right? From That's Legends. True. Yeah, oh, so there's yep. that. Uh, but, but, like, Tim was a jerk, and Tim shouldn't have done what he did. But also, like... He's not without sympathy and shouldn't have shouldn't have been gunned down in the street. But it does like Endo does a good job of sort of complicating these otherwise very straightforward archetypal narratives in a way that I think is productive for creating questions to ask. Exactly. And, and like I said, because it, it, it not only problematizes the rebellion, but it also 
sort of steps back from the idea of the empire. Like the empire is clearly evil, yeah. but you know, one of the first characters we're introduced to is a woman who is clearly much more competent at her job than the people around her give her credit for. Mm-hmm. And who is constantly having men question her work and question her ability. And there's a natural part of me that's like, you go, girl. I want you to succeed. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're trying to succeed at the Imperial Security Bureau hunting down our hero. Okay, maybe I, I, I was so angry at the writers and so impressed yeah. with them at the same time. Because, like, yeah, it just yeah. It, it, it just gives so – like I said, it's ruining the things you love. It's like – now that I've seen those poor schnooks who are imperial soldiers who just want to like go and watch the pretty stars, mm-hmm. watching them get murdered by, watching them get killed by the thousands when the Death Star blows up or the millions, yeah, it problematizes it, and it's I love it, it but it's you, you it, can't see it's hard to enjoy media the same way once you have this analysis. You know what we don't talk about with the explosion of the Death Star is what happened to all the debris and what planets did it land on and who did it murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, but but yeah, um, no, I, I I'm inclined to agree. It it does. I think uh, I think good media doesn't necessarily have to because problematizing things is easy. Um, I think good media troubles our conscience and hopefully mm. in a productive way, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Afflict the comfort. Uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, as I learned in seminary. Well. Uh, Dr. Cruz, Gabriel, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, I'd love to get you back on some other time. Yeah. If nothing else, I have been waiting for about five years to do an episode specifically on Daredevil's theology, which if I've <laughs> ever found a more perfect guest for, I don't want to volunteer you, but I think that might be up your alley. I'm, um, I'm, I'm down. Listen, we need more happy Catholic representation. Good God. It's not all like... Right? It's not all depression. Like... <laughs> And look, a Catholic can get some. Like I'm happy yeah. for him on Shield. No, it's true. You know? Listen, cat, you know he he throws down. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just I, for me, particularly as a scholar of Job, like the Book of yeah. Job is the one I read most. And so when uh, I studied in Hebrew, and so when he's quoting from it all through season three, I'm like, oh my god, ninety five percent of my fans won't care. But there's so much theology here. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, so we'll definitely get you back uh, yeah. uh, for sure. But there's so much great content you're putting out there. You mentioned some articles. Uh, I'm going to ask you to send me links to everything you do so I can put it in the show notes. But just for those who are listening, give a quick quick summary of where they can find your stuff and where they can find more of what you're doing. Yeah. So uh, if you want to hear me holler into the void, um, I am on TikTok, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. Very little on Twitter, but on Twitter at Cruz underscore PhD. Uh, I have a podcast called Office Hours with Dr. C where we talk about pop culture stuff uh, and what have you and usually like, you know, uh, bite-sized chunks. And, uh, yeah, I have a website called GA Cruise PhD, which I often forget that I have, um, <laughs> but it's there and you can find like, I upload occasionally like articles and stuff that I've written, uh, mm-hmm. from academic publications so that people don't have to pay for them. Uh, so yeah. And you know, uh, check out my stuff. I like to tell people that, you know, if you're, if you're in a, if you're having dinner with family and things get uncomfortably quiet, play our podcast. You know, it'll break the silence and, <laughs> and certainly give you something to talk about. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's it, it really is. It's a great podcast. You get great guests. Uh, you recently had something with like people of a whole bunch of different religious backgrounds on that I really yeah. enjoyed. You had one guest who had some beliefs that were pretty far away from mine. And I wasn't sure if you were just kind of like being a very good host and biting your lip for what you're doing. But it, it, it was really well done. But the thing I especially want to call out, because I think it is such a great example of 
the kind of analysis you do and how it adds so much. You did a series on the different racial groups in Lord of the Rings, specifically in Rings of Power, yeah. that are on TikTok that just blew me away because in three minutes, you were able to kind of give me so much more to think about, not only of that racial group in that world, mm -hmm. but how the elements of storytelling tie into what we think about stuff in our own world. So I, I really want to suggest people check that out. Um, all those links will be in the show notes. Definitely check out the great stuff you do. Yeah. Thanks, so thank you so much for being a guest. And to our listeners, as always, thank you so much. So I had to re-record this closing at a later time. So once again, such big thanks to Dr. Cruz for being a part of this. And to you, our fans, thank you so much. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We've introduced a lot of ideas uh, and, and theory and the like that would love to get your thoughts on. Of course, you can find us by going to theethicalpanda.com. There you'll find our Twitter, our feedback, all those things. A couple of things I just want to quickly let people know. We're coming to the end of the year. Uh, I'm probably going to take next week off as I get ready for holiday stuff. Um, and there's a possibility that going forward, we're going to move to once every other week superhero ethics episodes. I want to keep going week to week, but um, I'm having to find a different co-host each time. We're not always able to get people, as well as there's just so much Star Wars content coming out. So I'm looking into that as a possibility. Another thing I'm looking into is the idea of trying to uh, do more to, to, to get a little more funding out of this. Um, possibly a Patreon or something like that. Um, you know, there's, there's some expenses we need, some new recording equipment and things like that. Uh, and, and just also to justify doing that much of, of making sure I keep it at a week. I'd love to keep doing that. But we might start asking for some Patreon or something like that. Of course, if you wanted to keep listening, that's always going to be fine. If you want to listen and um, share this with your friends and help more people learn about it, that's also great. But also, once we get Patreon up and going, if, you know, given a dollar a week or a dollar a month or something like that is a way you want to help support the program, we'd absolutely love it. And we'll talk to you about all sorts of different ways we can thank you for that kind of thing. So keep your eyes peeled on that. Uh, understand if we don't have an episode up for you next week, it's just because we're taking some time off for the holidays. And I hope everyone enjoys the holidays and has a happy new year. And I look forward to bringing you more content in 2015.